Okay, so could you just start by saying your name and what your current position is and what your previous association with the university was? So my name is Anne Ogbe, um, Dr. Anne Ogbe, and um, my current position is a group leader at um, a biotech company, um, Adaptimian, just um, down the road in Milton Park. And I used to work at the university as a senior postdoc, a senior immunologist with um, Freighter Lab, um, Professor John Freighter's lab. And um, yeah, and I was with the university for about seven years before I left. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, going back to the very beginning, um, tell me about your, your career to date. How did you first get interested in science and decide you were going to be a researcher? So I thought about this question and it's not, it, it wasn't something that, because I, I know that for some people here, they've always wanted to be a scientist, they've always wanted to be a researcher. But um, as you can probably tell from my accent, I did not grow up here. I'm not from here. And so my, um, Nigerian um, by um, origin and I had my first degree there I did all of my primary education there and it's not something we research and science isn't really a third world thing if I can say it that way it's not something that developing countries um, really think about this shoot, but it's not just our priority at the minute. So um, even though I had a lot of real world examples of diseases and I was interested in them, um, I didn't really think I was going to end up as a scientist or as a researcher. Did you I, think you might be a doctor? Exactly, right. exactly. That's right. where I was just about to oh, go. So you, got, you sort of got, you, you, you took what you were given. Mm. And we had this entrance examination where you sort of state what you want to um, study at university and then that goes out and you write an exam and depending on your um, if you made the points for it but the points were also complicated by what part of the country you came from so if you were considered um, to be from a part of the country that was highly educated your points were much higher and then it depended on what university you picked as well if it was within your catchment area it meant that your points might not be so high, but if it was outside your catchment area, you know, it just made it quite difficult mm -hmm. to get in. So um, I wanted to study medicine but, um, and be a doctor because those are the things you do, engineering, doctor, accountant, pharmacy. Um, but I didn't make the points. Um, and so I got, I got given biomedical sciences or biological sciences as we called it. And I remember thinking, oh, what am I going to do with it? I'm just going to be a teacher afterwards. And <laughs> And um, first year was a bit rough. And then second year, third year, I think I strapped up my boots and said, yeah, okay, let's do it. And then I finished. And I think at that point, we were starting to hear a bit more about um, um, cancers. So growing up, it was a whole lot of HIV and a whole lot of malaria. But um, towards the time I, had, I finished, I started to hear a bit about cancers. And I, I, again, with my fascination with infectious diseases, um, or just diseases in general. I wanted to know, you know, what was happening. And um, there wasn't any chance to do that. Um, so I started out in the bank. I worked in the bank for about a year, a year and a half. And then I was fortunate, privileged to be able to afford an education here. And so I moved here for my master's degree. And I started out by doing um, a master's in molecular medicine with cancer research because I thought, well, after my master's degree, um, if I went back home, I can sort of 
set up a diagnostic lab in Nigeria because we didn't have a lot of that. Um, I could, you know, um, do something along those lines to educate the, the public about um, how to identify these cancers, what sort of tests, you know, how do you screen for breast cancer and um, things like that. And then... Um, and where did you do your master's? In, at Brunel University in mm -hmm. London. And then after my master's, um, the lab I did my master's in, they had this really interesting project. Um, it was looking at um, this pair of genes. So um, they are called the early group response genes. And then I went into a bit more of trying to understand what was going on. So some more mechanistic studies. And we found out that the genes that we were interested in um, actually controls one of the signature um, transcription factors for a very important T-cell subset. They are called the um, follicular helper T-cells. So they help the B-cells make this, you know, the gold standard of antibodies, you know, the high affinity antibodies that have been somatically um, hypermutated and, you know, with different sort of um, response. So, um, so let's let's just go in, into that a little bit, just so that we've got a good background yeah. on, on. So, what are the the main um, arms of the immune system, and and what's the difference between what the T cells do and what the B cells do? So, um, the main arms of the immune system would be the innate immune arm, which is like your immediate, your first responders is the way I'll put it. They are very non-specialized, but they are on the scene quite quickly. And these are the T cells? No, these oh, no, are not the not. T cells. They are not the T cells. These would be your uh, macrophages, your neutrophils would be the very first ones to mm. arrive on the scene. And I always use the analogy of a, um, a crime scene mm -hmm. or um, an accident scene where you very quickly you get the emergency responders and they come and they sort of take the you know vital information, write down things on their notepad. This is exactly what the innate response um, 
um, arm does. The neutrophils would come and, or oh, what's going on here? They survey the place. They um, start to send out signals. So like the sirens you get and the lights, they start to send all of that out. Then the macrophages would come in and they start to pick up the pieces, sort of trying to form a pattern of this invader or of this crime scene. And then they then go away with the, the macrophages. And there's another cell as well called the dendritic cell that they do this quite well. They engulf the particles, they chomp it down into tiny pieces and then present it like a profile and say, look, this is who you're going for. And then the specialized arm then come in. This is where we have the T cells and the B cells. So that would now, that, that's the transition from the innate immune system to the adaptive immune system where you have the T cells and the B cells. And then they come in and they are so specialized. They are like your top level um, snipers or whatever it is. They have the profile, they are going for the profile. You don't have a lot of collateral damage with them because they know exactly what they are going for. Whilst with the other ones, the non-specialized guys, you get a whole lot of collateral damage. Um, um, so you've got the T cells that sort of target um, cellular immune response. So they target the cells that are infected. And then you've got the um, B cells that are more um, humoral. So they secrete these antibodies, they shoot them out like 2,000 molecules per second, I think, for some of them. And these antibodies then go through the bloodstream and then are able to target pathogens. Um, the way the antibodies do it, again, kind of like a crime scene, um, where you have, um, you know, some of those um, vans that tell you if you try to steal from it, you get sprayed by something. Yes. So this B cells just, the antibodies just sort of dot pathogen or the antigen and then that means that other cells can then come and say oh right that's you and then engulf it mm. so those are the two that's main things. that's a really good explanation <laughs> sorry i interrupted you in your story no so no you... that's fine <laughs> i am um, I, I i like to do this public engagement and i was doing one for um, a group of um, school children and i thought what's the easiest way to message the immune system to them. I thought, oh, first responders, that was... Un <laughs> yeah. Pretty good. Yeah, so, sorry, I, I think I sort okay. of interrupted you in mid-flow when you were talking about your PhD. Right, topic. okay, yes, yeah. so we're talking about the TFH cells. Within the T cells, you have different types. You have, um, I think the most common that people would know are the CD4 T cells which we call the helper T cells, and the CD8 T cells, which we call the cytotoxic T cells. Um, now the CD4 T cells, just as their name implies, they help the cytotoxic T cells. There are different flavors of those. So you have, um, depending on the antigen they see, depending on um, the site of infection, you have different ones. You could have um, the TH1 um, CD4 cells, which would be more um, geared to help the CD8 cells with viral infections, then you have the TH17s that sort of line your mucosal, um, so your cells, your epithelial surfaces that um, interact with um, um, the bloodstream. Then you've got, um, um, you've got the TH2 as well that um, perform some important functions, but at the moment they seem to be, um, they get, a bad rep for um, their role in allergies and then you've got the follicular helper t-cells which um, is the one that i was working on then the cd8s which are the other types of um, t-cells you have um, as, as their name um, suggests they sort of mediate this killing function 
of the T-cell. So they have this debt packages where they would shoot it out. They come into close proximity with their target and then they shoot out these debt packages. That's one way they would do it. Sometimes they would also engage with the cell they want to kill and then send off signals. That then means that the cell gets um, killed, but all of this killing is done in a controlled manner so that you don't have inflammation and then it's mopped up by um, other cells in the immune system. Um, so yeah, that was my PhD. Mm, mm. So that sounds as if it was quite exciting because you it was. discovered something new and demonstrated it both ways around. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And that's what you want to do in a PhD, yes. isn't it? Get something novel and advance the field ever so slightly. Mm. Um, then I moved to Oxford um, mm -hmm. after my PhD. Um, I started in um, a lab um, just down the road um, in the NDM, the NDM RB. And we were interested in um, 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 HIV and I was you know, so pleased to be there because, like I said, growing up I saw a lot of first-hand real-world example of the disease um, taking hold in um, Nigeria and I, I, I never really had the facts but I was just so fascinated mm. about it. Um, so to be able to do it at this level I was really, really um, pleased and what we wanted to do was um, I hadn't completely left my PhD. I had taken those cells that I knew um, helped to make this really, you know, gold standard antibody. And we were asking the question if those cells played a role in HIV. And the reason was because we had found a group of HIV infected people, a very tiny proportion of HIV infected people, um, depending on how broadly um, you look at your antibodies, um, they're an elite group of infected people that would make this broadly neutralizing antibodies. So part of the problem with HIV is that it has a very high mutation rate. So um, the diversity in one person alone, the viral diversity in one person alone, is so much that the immune system is always trying to play catch up with the virus. The virus is evolving, the immune system is trying to catch up, and it just knackers the immune system. But in a group of an elite group of people we found that they um, made this broadly neutralizing antibodies that could neutralize a wide strain up to I think the figures at the time I left was up to 90% of circulating strains but the problem was it had no clinical benefit to them because their own virus had mutated past the, yes, yes. yes so it had no clinical benefit so what we wanted to do was how can we make this broadly neutralizing antibodies arise, um, arise earlier in people or how can we even make it into a prophylactic vaccine so that um, at-risk populations or maybe even the general population can have that just the same way we have our vaccination strategy. So we thought, well, maybe these cells that play a role in um, um, driving this antibody response might be important in these people. And what we found was that, yeah, they were 
they seem they, it looked like they played a role because in this group of people they seem to have a higher number of these cells in their circulation so we're trying to really get into how they were playing that role and it was a very big um, it was um, it was with a very big consortium um, funded by the NIH and some collaborators at Duke University in um, the US um, but we it, it's it's quite it was quite a difficult question to ask because in order for this people this um, infected people to make this broadly neutralizing antibodies it meant that they didn't go on the standard of care which was antiretroviral therapy right. yes. and at the moment as, as soon as a person gets infected they get put on art so mm. you don't really get to develop those broadly neutralizing antibodies anymore and the reason why art limits the development of this is that you need the antigenic diversity you need that arms race to push the immune system to broaden its um, 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 response but art as you would imagine keeps the viral load down so there isn't really any evolution of the virus or very minimal evolution of the virus and um, so the samples we had were from way back before art came in so they were very precious um, and then because we're looking at um, um, subjects that did not um, go on antiretroviral therapy, it meant that their, their immune system had been battered by the virus for years. And as we know with HIV, one of its canonical ways of um, battering the immune system is depleting the CD4 cells. So the CD4 cells, which I was interested in, were almost completely gone. And I was looking for 5% of those almost completely gone cells. Mm, those were the cells mm, I was mm. interested in. So while I didn't, I didn't quite come out of that project with um, a publication, I came out of it with a lot of learning because I had to optimize a lot of things. I had to develop a lot of assays. I had to make my own, sort of trying to find a needle in a haystack. So I had to make my own ways of finding things and um, I think a lot of what I'm doing now is credit to that mm -hmm. um, because it, it really put the resilience mm -hmm. and the rigor <laughs> in the... 95% um, well, of science is failure all the time. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. But you learn, as yeah, you say, yeah, you learn. Yeah. And some of the methods that we developed while trying to um, find that, you know, elusive or answer the elusive question we had were um, then used with um, other projects I was involved in. For instance, I got involved in the malaria vaccine project and some of the, the T-cell assays I had set up was then used for that. And I think we might touch on that later where um, when we talk about the COVID vaccines. Um, and then um, I left that lab um, and then moved to John's lab. Again, still keeping within the, the theme of HIV and antibodies. Um, he, he had a very interesting project where he was looking at, um, he had moved from, we, we had moved from prophylactic vaccines now to therapeutic modalities and John's lab is very focused on HIV cure. And you know, while I think for most people in the field, we have accepted that we're never gonna have a sterilizing cure, at least not anytime soon. We wouldn't have a sterilizing cure for HIV because the virus forms this reservoir. And as soon as you take people off antiretroviral therapy, it just starts to replicate and very quickly it rebounds. Um, what we want to get is some kind of functional cure where people can 
be off antiretroviral therapy for a long time because there are issues with um, antiretroviral therapy like there's the toxicity issue, there's the resistance and um, there's also compliance and as you can imagine logistics as well if you're thinking about remote villages in Africa or Southeast Asia there's um, also um, the fact that HIV is still a disease that people discriminate against so for some people going to get their antiretroviral therapy is it's it's quite risky for them you know so if we can take that um, off them and make it in such a way that you don't need to take a pill every day anymore you can now take appeal once a year or once in six months even once in two months would be much better than every single day um, so that's what a lot of the HIV um, cure studies are focused on and that's mm. what John's lab is focused on so he got funding from um, the Gates and Mel um, <laughs> the Gates Foundation um, and um, we set up this clinical trial that was just brilliant so they had this broadly neutralizing antibodies, the ones that can neutralize more than 90% of circulating strains. But they had tweaked them, they had engineered them so that they were now long lasting. But also, if you infuse them on already infected people, in already infected people, you could get a suppression of viremia even in the absence of art. So the questions we're asking were twofold. Can we replicate this with the long-acting BNABs? And also, if we could, um, what, how were they keeping um, viral load at bay? And what they had done in that study was try to sort of see what cells were controlling it. So, you know, um, you would always want to start with something big and keep narrowing it. So they started with the cells and then they depleted some of the cells. They depleted the natural killer cells and the CD8 cells. And they found when they depleted the cells, they had a spike in viral load. So that sort of gave an indication that something with the cells was helping to control it. But it didn't quite make sense that you know, how, you know, antibodies don't really interact with um, CD8 cells. Um, antibodies could interact with the NK cells because um, part of the effective function of antibodies would recruit the NK cells, but not quite the CD8. So how were they doing that? And this was where I came in as an immunologist on the trial. Um, I was the lead immunolo immunologist on the trial. We wanted to, first of all, characterize what happened after we infused these people with these BNABs. Um, what happened to their immune response? Did it die falsify? Um, what kind of responses were they making? And so um, we wanted to sort of elucidated this vaccinal effect that we thought was happening. Yeah. And how, how did that go? <laughs> um, well, 
So we had COVID. Um, just, oh, I see. Yeah. That came along just <laughs> yeah. at that point. Yeah, just, okay. just when we were about to um, start the clinical trial. I think we had our first patient and we're ready to dose um, in March. Mm -hmm. And then COVID happened. So mm -hmm. we had to pause it. And then it didn't get, we didn't start um, till a year and a half later. Mm. Um, but the, the trial's gone really far and really well. And I'm not allowed to no. share yet, but um, I, I think it's looking quite promising. Mm. And I expect that there will be um, something, a publication coming up um, quite soon. Um, but yeah. Mm. Mm. It, it's, so, it's, no, but you got us to COVID. So that my question that I'm asking everybody is, can you remember when you first heard that there was some respiratory illness going on in China yeah. and how you came to realize it might be serious and then how you became engaged yeah. in, in a response. So I think um, I heard about it in December because it was in the news towards you know the first week, second week of December, about that time and mm. then it became more serious as we got to Christmas. And I think I saw it and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, something else on the news, you know, I didn't mm. really pay a lot of attention to it. And then um, I remember going away. It started to get more and more serious, and it was like the only thing on the news. And I was like, oh, this disease from China, you know. Um, and then um, um, I, went to, I went on a holiday to Malta, and I remember just having a slight bit of, should I be going on this holiday? This was in January. But then we, I think they had, one or two cases in um i don't i don't remember if it was the uk or somewhere in europe um but i went there and i had this cold before i went um no i, I came back with a cold and i couldn't shake off the cold and i think like everybody in the uk when you speak to them they're like oh i had something in january i think i had COVID." <laughs> so even i was thinking oh yeah i think i had COVID," but um i don't think so it wasn't COVID. um and then I came back from Malta at the end of January, and I, I think that was when I really thought, okay, this is getting quite serious. And also, um, you never really, at least for me, I never really thought about it until we had the first case in the UK. And then the scaremongering started, and we didn't know anything about this disease. All we knew was the SARS-CoV-1, which mm. we knew was very um, um, deadly. So I think, we started to have a bit of panic and I remember thinking um, this was around February March time when they were having the debate about the Cheltenham races mm. and I think I had gone into full on, a full-blown panic at that point I was like no the races shouldn't be going on this is an airborne virus it should not be going on um, and then everything just sort of happened very quickly and almost like a dream because you know, one day the university is like, we're going to carry on with our work and blah, blah, blah. And then the next day, um, there's talks about a, a, a press conference from um, um, number 10. And I think just before the press conference, we then got the news that everything is to cease in the university and we're all supposed to go walk from home. And it just, it just felt... It just felt like the end of days in a way. Um, so we were at home for two weeks while we tried to sort out um, our ethics and stuff. Um, but we always 
knew that we would be involved in COVID somehow. So for most of us, I think, um, as soon as we started to hear that the, the numbers were going up, um, I think almost uh, quite a number of us from here volunteered to work at the hospital, mm -hmm. take our skills to the hospital. Um, all the doctors, all the medics had gone back to the hospital already. Um, the scientists like myself, you know, we could do QPCRs, we could do, you know, the PCRs and we had they were overwhelmed. Um, we could do whatever it was, you know, we were all trained. So just tell us what you needed. And a few of us sort of started, I think personally, I spent like a day or two, two nights in the hospitals um, doing the, some of the assays for detection and then we had to be called back in the lab and it was just go 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 from mm -hmm. then on. So what was the question that the lab set out to address specifically? So I think at that time um, we just wanted to know what the immunology of this disease was so it was very much observational and that's what you can do at mm -hmm. the start um, you know observational studies um, what was the disease doing to the body? What was the body doing to um, um, COVID? How long was it taking to cl clear COVID? Why were some people asymptomatic? Why were some people symptomatic? And why did some people even die? Um, you know, why did it impact children, but did it did not, re why did it impact adults, sorry, but didn't impact children so much? Why was it more severe in certain ethnicities versus others? Why was it, why were um, males more impacted than females in terms of disease severity? So it was all those questions. So we set up um, an observational study where we started by just simply, um, <laughs> it, it sounds quite simple, but we didn't even know what tools to use so it's like you've got all this arsenal you're you know and you're like right now what do i do so what we did was um we then took all our arsenal and just hit it with it and said which one answers the question mm -hmm. the best and where, where were you getting your samples from well, from the hospital the yes, um yes. healthcare worker um, we set up a healthcare worker cohort and i mean it was just fantastic collaboration because these people despite the fact that they were so busy, they were worn out, they were coming for regular bleeds. Um, it was just a beautiful collaboration to see everyone mm. work together like that. And it was so selfless. Mm. Um, so we had the healthcare worker study. Um, we got our samples. Then from our end, we had the uh, intellectual input as to how we're going to conduct our study. So first of all, we wanted to know how do we characterize the immune response in these people? We had the standard T-cell assays that we would use, the LA spots. We had the, um, um, so LA spot, basically, it looks at um, the functionality of a cell by, um, you get the cells and then you get um, an antigen or a part of the virus. You can either make that synthetically in the lab um, as um, protein shot peptides, um, or you can um, get the virus lysate. But at that time, we weren't allowed to go anywhere near COVID because we didn't know it. So we had the synthetic peptides, and then you put that on the cells. And if a cell is specific, if a T cell is specific for that particular antigen, it would start to make these molecules, so sort of start to signal. 
And what we then do is um, we then trap that signal in, in a plate on a membrane and then we can quantify how big the response is. So you're asking the cell, do you recognise this? Do you recognise this? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Kind of like an interrogation. Do yes. you? Yes. <laughs> so, um, uh, um, what do they call it? Um, you know, a line-up. Yeah, a line-up. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Identification parade, that's what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and we were the ones behind the screen and we're saying, yeah, which one of them is the criminal? But yeah. Um, we, we did that and then it secretes this um, um, cytokines, we call them, um, and it's, it's all of our T-cell assays are on spectrums of sensitivity, so there's, you know, um, it's a balance between sensitivity, specificity, um, and, you know, a number of different things that you may have to compromise with. In some cases, you're able to sort of take the, take, ask the cell, you know, do you recognize this? But then say, well, if you recognize this, I want to know um, exactly how you are, what's your own profile. Um, so if we're using the analogy of a lineup, it's a two-way blinded thing where you can say, oh, someone here recognizes it, but you don't quite know who the person is versus taking that blinds off and you're like, well, this person, this female, this male, you know, recognizes this um, 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 culprits so you can you know it depends on what you want so we took all the approach because we wanted to be able to um, 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 we wanted to be agnostic about it and come up with um, the best possible way of detecting it and we found that depending on the mm. assay you had you got different readouts so um, with our early spots we're able to peak um, um, cross reactivity but not a whole lot of cross-reactivity. So um, cross-reactivity basically is the ability of one particular cell to be able to recognize multiple antigens, and which is advantageous in if you think about diseases that are closely related, but it can also be disadvantageous because um, it can also lead to non-specific responses. So again, that's this is the nuance of the immune system. So we um, found that we were able to see some level of this cross-reactivity with the early spots. We didn't see very much with the um, ICS. The ICS is another assay that's less sensitive than the early spot, but with the ICS you can go into the fine details of what the cells are. What does it stand for? Um, intracellular cytokine staining. And so this would use um, um, just a, an in vitro assay as well. You stick the same peptide, but rather than um, letting the cytokines get um, secreted out of the cell and you trap it on the membrane, you actually hold it in the cell. And then you can come with other probes, um, this antibody probes that we make, and then you can stick all of these probes on them and then pass it through a machine that beams these lasers on it, and then it tells you, oh, it's got this, it's got that, um, depending on what you put, what probes you put in there. But it has, it's a much more reduced sensitivity. But um, sometimes you want to know exactly what it is, so you will be willing to take that compromise of a bit less sensitivity, but I get to know exactly what this cell is. And then there are other assays as well where, um, especially when the population is really low, where um, the number of cells that recognize a particular um, pathogen is really low, you want to expand them out for a bit. Um, and what that, happen, what that does is that you, know, you increase the sensitivity, but it means that you don't know what you started, you don't know who started, it, started out at the, at, 
who started to make it. Um, so um, basically just saying, take this and pass it on to people. And then a lot of people end up getting it. But Or a lot of, um, yeah, if you imagine sharing candy and you've just said, pass this on. Um, but you don't quite remember who started the yeah. passing on. Yeah. Um, so you don't get that information from um, um, the, the, the proliferation assays. So we took all of that approach and then we found out depending on what assay you took, um, you were able to answer different questions and that paper went out quite quickly and I think that paper is quite well cited now because it showed that you know different T-cell assays. We already knew it in the field but it sort of solidified that um, that you know different assays and especially with COVID, you want to be able to either use all all of the assays, all everything you've got in your arsenal, or at least pick the best one that answers your question. Um, and then um, we then moved on to, I think, quite quickly the vaccines started to come out, thankfully. So we then moved into um, a lot of um, characterizing the vaccine immune responses. Um, you know, um, knowing what sort of immune responses these vaccines were making, how long did it last? Um, we did that in healthcare workers. We also did comparative studies where we compared the mRNA vaccines to the to the um, adenoviral vectored vaccines that were made in Oxford. Then, as part of um, our work here at Oxford, um, we made we had all the um, 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 the Chadox vaccine um, and part of vaccine um, um, the the trials that you would have with a vaccine before it's rolled out is also looking in um, certain groups of people so sometimes it would start out in adults then move to kids and then move to other populations but because we had a group of HIV infected people that um, we had been working with for years um, they were included in the study, and so we did um, some of the. Were they, were they regarded as? Um, um, I've forgotten what the phrase is. More vulnerable, and they were they were regarded yes. as more vulnerable. Yes. yes. Um, so yeah, exactly. They were mm. regarded as more vulnerable. So we did a lot of the HIV, the preliminary work on the HIV vaccines um, for the Chadox. We had a sub study, um, and. Um, you know, we published that in a paper as well that's also heavily cited. And I think I'm quite proud of the fact that some of the work we did with that vulnerable population um, did inform some of the earlier policies on um, 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 the management for COVID in HIV-infected people and also the um, vaccination for them. Mm. So what was the, what was the outcome? For we found that it was safe mm -hmm. in them because um, the worry is that for certain... Um, vaccines we found that in HIV um, when HIV infected people receive it it triggers uh, it could potentially reactivate their immune system and then trigger um, um, increased replication in the virus oh, I see. Yes. Um, so we found that you know we weren't saying that we found that it was safe they didn't have any adverse effects and also when you consider that these are people whose immune systems are still in a way compromised because even though they go on arts quite quickly, um, art is the antiretroviral therapy, they go on that quite quickly, the immune system never fully recovers. So mm. you have to make sure that whatever you are giving to this population, it's well characterized and is safe for them. 
and that was what we did. Mm. And were they protected from COVID? They were protected from COVID, yes. yeah, when they received the vaccine, yes, mm. they were protected to the same level as um, um, healthy mm. um, or uninfected people. We shouldn't use the word healthy because they are healthy as well, <laughs> but uninfected people. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So, yeah. uh, and um, I, I don't want to rush you on, but you've, um, I mean, I was just reading a study you've done on um, volunteers who'd taken part in challenge studies. Uh, is that right? In the challenge? Um, oh. No, I'm not, I'm not familiar no? with that. Oh, right, sorry, I must have made That's a mistake. Okay. That's okay, <laughs> that's all right, that's all right. <laughs> um, but, um, so yes, yeah, so we, yeah, I, th well, the, I think the paper I'm thinking of was, a, was, a, it was about cross-reactivity and whether um, uh, previous infection with... Um, I think it was the review that we wrote um, because we were quite interested in this cross-reactivity um, and it, it's, it's I, I can give you a bit of history on how we sort of stumbled on it. So we had this, we we're looking for healthy controls that had never been infected with COVID. And um, we bled, um, I remember that day there were 30 people and I bled 30 people. Um, <laughs> oh, so you, you are involved in the sample collection. Yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I've, I'm a trained phlebotomist as well. So, um, and I was the only one on site that day. So there was a long queue <laughs> of people. Um, and um, we, thankfully at that time, we had stopped doing the assays um, fresh. We had started to freeze down the sample, so we had time to go back to it. But I remember doing the first set of assays, because I, I did them, I was leading a team of um, um, scientists that were doing um, these assays, and I did the first set. And with the proliferation assay, you have to wait seven days. So to wait seven days and then get a result that you don't, well, at that time, I thought this was bad result, but to wait seven days and not, and not get what you expect, that mm. can be quite heartbreaking. But I was looking at it and I was like, no, this doesn't, this doesn't look right. People, these people have all said they haven't been infected with COVID. It's still very early days, so I'm quite certain they haven't. But everyone, you know, when you look at, or almost everyone, when you look at the a part of the envelope protein, almost everyone had a response there. So where is that coming from? Um, and I remember thinking, oh, I, I'm going to have to repeat this. So I, I set the first set aside, um, and then I did the second set of patients, another 10. The first set was 10. I did the second set, another 10. And it was the same results. And then I got someone else to repeat the first set, the first set, because I was like, okay, maybe I've gone crazy. Um, and then they got the same thing as I did. So we started to think and then, um, and I think the first, the first T-cell paper came out around that time. It was sometime in April or May and we were like- 2021. 2020, yeah. Oh, 2020. 2020, oh, wow, yeah. Yes. I remember we were all waiting for the first papers to mm. come out because we were not ready with any papers yet. But, um, and because you're sort of digging in the dark, mm -hmm. And you're doing it under so much pressure and the eye of the world suddenly was on you. Like if ever a time a scientist was important, that was it. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember driving through on the motorway and being the only car there with my permit saying I was um, an imp not important, a key, key, a key worker. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so we 
did it. And then the first few papers started to come out. Mm. And then we started from to... From elsewhere. From yeah. elsewhere. Yeah. Um, I think it was from La Jolla, um, the scripts in La Jolla, the first ones. And we started to... They started to report this cross-reactivity, but they saw it at really low levels. And so um, we then started to align the sequence of the virus. Because I think the sequence... We had the sequence, mm. but there was just so much to do. But... Um, we then aligned the sequences with the virus and we saw that you know there were parts of the sequences that were very conserved across the um, coronaviruses particularly the beta coronaviruses and that would include some of the um, seasonal colds so what we were picking up could have been response to some of the seasonal colds but also those responses as we've come to know with covid don't last very long mm -hmm. but because we're coming out of the winter and people may have encountered those, it was quite strongly... Like you had one. Put, yeah, exactly. And I was quite strongly positive. <laughs> um, uh, but it was interesting because it was just the envelope. And so we found out that if you want to look for COVID-specific responses, don't look for the envelope proteins because that would be quite cross-reactive. In fact, you would probably be better off looking for something using an acid that's less sensitive because if it's less sensitive, you're more likely to pick up more recent infections versus the highly sensitive ones that would pick up really minute sort of um, signals. Um, and then um, we sort of started to ask the question, well, what's the role in this cross-reactive responses? What do they do? Um, and I remember sitting on it for a really long time. Like, I just, I really, I really got into it. And um, I think I had written up a grant for funding. I didn't get the funding, but I really wanted to go into those cross-reactive responses because what I was thinking was, well, maybe if we can find something that is common to all of them, we can make a pan-coronavirus vaccine. And maybe we don't need to go all the way because we know SARS-CoV-1 and uh, MERS-CoV are quite lethal. Um, if we can find something that we can, you know, we don't have a pandemic for those um, and the epidemics, I think, were years um, um, previously. But maybe we can, you know, protect against future outbreaks. Um, and so we were having a meeting and um, Ellie, Sam and John and I were, you know, just... A meeting on something else. We're That's talking Ellie about Barnes, Ellie Barnes, Sam, Sam Murray, yeah. um, John Freita. Yeah. We're talking about. Um, I think it was the one of the cohorts. I think it was the cancer cohorts, and um, we just talked about. Oh, you know, I said I've, I've, I'm very interested in looking at this cross-reactive responses, and I think no one really knows what's going on with them. You know, we were one of the first people to report it, and I think we should go a bit deeper. If nothing, if we can't do the experiment, at least let's um, put the literature together and see what it says, and then plan an experiment after we know what the literature says. Yeah, so that went on for two years. <laughs> and the papers just kept coming out and coming out. But what was quite interesting was that we got to the end of that exercise and we pitched the ideas to the reviewers at Nature. They were happy with it and they were very, you know, they were very helpful in bouncing ideas and we kept talking for like the full um, two years. But um, when we got to the end of it, we realized we may have put it on paper, but it's still not clear. It's still just as nuanced as when we started but at least now 
you can read the nuance in an untangled piece of work. Mm, mm. You know, someone had done the job of bringing it all together. So we found that depending on whether it was um, T cells or B cells, it could be beneficial or non-beneficial, depending on where you looked at, depending on who it was, depending on if it was children, depending on if you had natural infection or vaccination. And it was a, it was a fantastic piece of work. And I, you know, yeah. yeah. So it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's still very nuanced, I think. Mm, mm, yeah. mm. Okay, good. So, um, yeah, I want to talk a bit more about collaboration because, uh, I mean, sometimes science is seen as quite competitive and, you know, within labs, mm -hmm. people want to kind of hold on to what they're doing until yeah, they've got absolutely. a publication. Um, but you've already talked about the, the extent of the collaboration. Yeah. Did, did that feel very different? It did, it did. So um, I think you're right that science can be very competitive. Um, but I think one of the things I liked about where I was working at the time, um, the Medwa, this building, was that they were already quite collaborative as a group. Um, so it was, they already had that rapport. But um, with COVID, I think I saw collaboration on a scale that I had never seen before. And for that brief moment where we were allowed to dream of what science could be, I think it was, it was just beautiful. It was beautiful. People did not care about their publications. I think science came back to what it should be, where the goal is how can we help? How, what good can we do for humanity now? It's not a case of how can I increase my publication record? And everyone just pitched in. There were people with samples. There were people with know-hows. There were people with... I trained molecular biologists on um, cell assays. And, you know, the, all the divisions that we'll normally have, oh, no, I'm a molecular biologist, I don't do this stuff, you know, cells are just weird, or, you know, that sort of thing. And all gone. And, but not just that, people were just willing to walk with, it was just all hands on deck. Um, it really felt like a front line and everybody just wanted to protect. Um, and pe everyone was doing their part. Um, I... I love that model of science and I don't know if, I think since then I've been seeing a lot of papers with um, big consortiums and huge author lists so I'm hoping that that means that something about COVID has stayed with the scientific community um, but I left shortly after COVID so I, I don't know what's, what's been happening, mm, yeah. Mm, mm. So um, have we got to that moment? I think we may have got to that moment, yes. Um, so you, yes, so you left in April 2022, yes. is that right? Yeah. Uh, and why was that? I think like a lot of people, um, I, I was feeling burnt out by the whole thing. It just, it didn't stop. Um, I was feeling a bit, so while my community, the scientific community, banded together and got stronger, um, 
I was feeling a bit disillusioned by the outside community and the, you know, it didn't matter what we did. The anti-vaxxers had something to say. Um, you know, we put a paper out there and they took the paper and they twisted it. I think there was some twisting about the cross-reactive immune, and, you know, and I just, and I don't, maybe people higher up had like the kind of support to deal with all of that, but certainly not at our level. We didn't have that support. There was no support for burnout. Um, there was no support for, so for instance, um, some people went on follow and um, they, they were at home, um, not by choice, but they were at home and it meant that their expenses had in a way reduced. Um, for me, my expenses had multiplied because I used to take the train to work. I could no longer take the train. I had to drive into work every day. Um, I, you know, and it was just, it didn't, it, I, I was just burnt out. I think physically, mentally, I was burnt out. Um, but also, it sort of highlighted another problem for me, which was, um, I, I may have reached a glass ceiling for myself um, and I could stay and keep hammering at that ceiling, but I think it took a bit more than my local environment to change for me to see a change or at least the change that I wanted. Um, it needed, there needed to be structural changes like proper frameworks put into place because um, you know, I did a lot of work um, with COVID and I did that with a lot of my colleagues that um, did not necessarily look like me. And I saw the benefits were different. How they came out of it was very different from how I was coming out of it. And um, sometimes their stage was just for them. And my stage constantly had to be shared. Um, and, 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 I see it and it, it wasn't because there was any, it wasn't conscious, it was unconscious the way it happened because people could see a medic having a group and leading a group in academia. People could see a white man, a white woman leading a group in academia in Oxford. No one could really see a black girl doing that. And so it just meant that unconsciously you weren't being prepared for that or you weren't being guided along that path. And I think I just, I, yeah, I was just burnt out. <laughs> yeah. Did you, I mean, the university does have diversity uh, people in, in the central administration uh, who are, I, I assume, yeah. their job is to uh, address that kind of issue. Yeah. Did you did you get so any So I don't know how. So um, I got into this mentorship program with the BSI and British. Uh, the British um, Society for Immunology. Immunology right. Yes. And because I felt like okay, I needed. I had gone this far on my own. I needed a mentor right now. I, it's. I had gone as far as I can go on my own. And, um, and around about the same time, I was writing the paper on my experience as a black woman in academia. And um, they were talking about their diversity initiatives and some other things they were doing. And then I decided to research into it. And I saw that um, 
do you know the Athena swan? Mm -hmm. Okay, so most people have heard of Athena swan, which is the gender equality initiative. Mm. Not a lot of people have heard about the um, um, race equality initiative. And I didn't even know that our university was or had um, pledged to the charter just the same way as they had done with the Athena swan. So Athena swan is very visible. The race equality initiative is not, it's not, it's not that visible. And I think um, <laughs> it's just, it's there, but it's, sometimes it's felt like it's just a veneer. Mm -hmm. It's not really being used. Um, yeah, so. Mm, mm, mm. So, you, did you start looking around for uh, uh, other opportunities? I did, or, I did. Yeah. So I started looking around. Um, I had started to write my own, while I was in academia, I was, I was still hoping that, you know, I could move on to the next level. I had postdoced for this long. Um, I wanted to get a fellowship, get, um, you know, start to start as a junior PI, get the kind of support. I had written um, grants. I had some ideas that um, I wanted to push along, but I, because I didn't quite have the sort of support that I wanted to, that I, I thought I, I needed at that time, um, I started to look around. So I put on LinkedIn that I was open to opportunities and then I, um, got a, a recruiter approached me and said, oh, we've got this opportunity um, in biotech. Um, are you ready to move? And I think at that point I was a bit frustrated. So I was like, yeah, sure, why not? You know, and I, I went through with the first stage and um, almost immediately she came back and she was like, oh, they want to meet for the second stage. I was like, oh, really? Okay, yeah, sure, let's do it. And I think I remember on one of the interviews, I was actually analyzing some data and um, because I didn't think it was gonna I didn't think it was serious I didn't think it was gonna get far and then we got to the point where oh now you have to meet with the VPs and, the, and I was like oh it's got quite serious <laughs> I think that's when I started to struggle a bit because I had reached this glass ceiling I didn't want to be a quitter and I kept thinking you know you think about certain things, you think about, and not to be dramatic or anything, but you think about the civil rights movement, and I think, well, if they quit, some of the rights we've got, we wouldn't have had it, you know? Um, and I thought, maybe stay, maybe push a bit more. And then the other part is like, well, you can't sacrifice yourself, right? Um, but the other thing I struggled with was my identity, as far as I knew, was as a scientist, as a researcher, and not just a researcher, because I, I, I was still going to maintain that, but I was an academic. I thought like an academic. I, you know, everything had to be broken down into logical arguments and stuff to the annoyance of my friends. <laughs> So that was my identity. What are you doing on the weekend? Oh, yeah, I've got this paper to read. I've got that. And in a way, it was a bondage, but at the same time, it was our identity. And I didn't know whether I could be anything other than that. And so I was struggling with that. If I lost that, 
if I if I was no longer Anne who worked at the University of Oxford on HIV and other viral diseases, what would I be? You know, and there's this thing about biotech as well. It's like, oh, this is where failed academics go to, and you know, that's 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 what people say. Or you know, oh, the ones that couldn't make it. So I was like, oh, does that mean I've accepted to failure? Oh, you know, it's just silly mindset. Um, but then I I had the interview, and then I thought about it. I've got a job, it's a group leader position, so exactly the next step that I was wanting in academia, I still get to do a lot of research. It's a very important um, 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 focus that the company I was working with um, had. It's um, cancer. I had met with the team. Um, they seem to have this clear career path. They had a structure, so I knew from a group leader, what was next? I knew what I had to do to get to the next level. Whilst in academia, it felt like the goalposts kept changing. You know, it's, you need this paper, that paper. And then when you had that paper, they had, well, it took you so long, so now you need this paper. And then also there were certain structural things like, um, um, one of the major funding bodies, I don't remember which one now, um, has got this grant that a lot of people who make it often have had that grant. I think it's either the Henry Welcome or the Henry Dill, one of them. Um, but for a long time, I think it's changing now, you couldn't apply for that grant if you weren't a British or EU citizen. Oh, I see. And I wasn't. Mm. So it didn't matter how much good work I was doing, grants like that were inaccessible to me. Um, and it's, it's those sort of structural things that needed to change and, you know, how long would I... And by the time I got to seven years, they're like, oh, certain grants, you can only apply within your first five years post-PhD. So it just felt like I... Yeah, it was just better to um, leave and then try to establish something else outside of um, academia. And I have to say that... It's not a choice that I have regretted at all. Mm -hmm. um, it's a much better work-life balance. The questions are, you know, very focused, very translational. You can see how it's going to impact the patients, and I still get to do a lot of science. You know, really, really important science. So, and do you get to publish still? Um, I haven't. I haven't published there. No, mm. um, but I think. The focus is slightly different, and mm. also because I was slightly more, um, I was slightly more downstream of the research. So you you have the team that does all of the researching. Um, so my company did TCR engineering. So there's a team that does all of that. And does, I, what what kind of engineering? TCR engineering. So the T cell receptor. Oh, right. They yes, engineer yes, it. Yes. Um, I was more. Once that's done yes. and it's come, then I characterize it. Yeah, yeah. Before it goes to the clinic and after it, after it's gone into the patients and we get the patient sample. So that was what I was doing. So it's kind of similar to what I have been doing here, characterizing the immune response. Um, so I haven't, no, I haven't published yet. But um, yeah. But you look happy. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I joke, I joke to uh, my colleagues here that um, when, I, when next I come to visit them, I'm going to come with a helicopter and arrive on the ceiling. 
just so that I can pull their legs about um, how much better it is in industry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think um, I, I'm surprised that I, I mean I can I can hear what you say about people saying that it's only failed academics who go and do industry, but there's a lot of to and fro. Absolutely. And some people go one way and then go yeah. back the other yeah. way. Yeah, well, and it's it's, it's so. even um, it's more to and froy. Um, if there's a word like that, um, these days now, because people have accepted that industry is making a lot of connection with academia, yeah. and academia is making a lot of connection with industry because I think academia has come to a point where it can't sustain the number of people it's churning out, so it needs to prepare the people it's churning out for a career in mm. industry. Mm. And, and in is your, not your company adapting? In, was that a spin out, an Oxford University spin out originally? I think so, I think yeah. so, yeah, I think so. I think um, the original founders um, would have been affiliated with Oxford, but I think almost every biotech in the Oxford area. There's <laughs> 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 a spin off from Oxford. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, Great. So that's, I'm just going to talk a little bit about your, your personal experience of living through. Um, the COVID pandemic. So, did first of all, um, how threatened did you feel by infection with the virus itself, just in moving around in the community or um, or through your work? Personally, I didn't, and I think this it, this is a bit of arrogance where, as a person, you feel immortal, uh, and I was like, well, I've never been diagnosed with. Um, any sort of comorbidities, so I'll probably be fine. But I think, and to this day, I still think the same way. I think about people who are vulnerable and people who had to um, shield. And that informed a lot of my actions during the pandemic, um, and even till now, because it almost feels like the world's moved on and forgotten that there's still a virus. Maybe it's not a pandemic anymore, but there's still a virus that could potentially be lethal to some people. And, you know, um, and the world has just said, well, tough, get on with it. Uh, and if I was in that position, how would I feel? You know, it's their way of life, their work, you know, they, if they couldn't go to work because of it, if they went to work and they had a mask, you know, people would, maybe jokingly, but people would make fun and it just, yeah. So personally, I didn't feel threatened, but I, I, I took a lot of actions um, because of people who were vulnerable and because of people who needed to shield. Um, yeah. So um, I, I didn't, I eventually got COVID, but I got COVID quite late. I got COVID um, it, it was the summer of last year. I went for a festival. <laughs> I know that's, that's contradicting what I said. <laughs> but in my, in my defense, I was doing a debate on the immune system at the festival. And so I went. And myself and my partner came back with COVID. And um, I remember doing my, because I, I still didn't think it was COVID, I thought, oh, I was just really tired and I felt feverish and stuff, so maybe it's just the cold. And I th and then um, I decided, okay, I, I might as well just do the test. So I did it and I had a really, really thick positive band and it felt a bit surreal, but at the same time, I felt relieved that, whew, now I can tick the box, <laughs> you know, it's, it's happened. 
Um, and then I went into a slight panic and I was like, oh, what if I get long COVID? Because that was the other thing. Um, you could get COVID and you could be fine, but what about long COVID? And then I was like, oh, what, what about, what if I didn't know that I had a heart condition and maybe this is it, this is how I die. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I was fine. Um, we were better in about two weeks. I think like most people had reported, you get better, but for like, a few weeks after, you're still breathless and you're still tired and um, a brain was foggy for a while. But we did get better. We did recover. And um, yeah, and thankfully, none of my, um, no one that I knew had had it really bad. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, um, I think we were fortunate. Mm -hmm. so. But then the, the, the work pressures were a different thing again. So what... It, what kind of hours were you were working? You working? Um, so <laughs> that's interesting. Um, so we would start. It, it was just it, it almost didn't stop. We're having meetings at eight p.m., nine p.m., um, and I say that I think we had it good compared to the other guys down the road, the Jenna, because don't quote me on this, but I, I I heard at some point they were running shifts, um, and they were had, having to pretty much not shut down. Um, but we were having meetings really late. Um, we were, so we, we were getting samples from all over the world. Um, and I remember times when I would come into work, I live in Banbury, I would come in um, and then we would have a sample stock at, I had driven to Birmingham before to pick up a sample. Um, I was about to drive to Luton to pick up another sample because at the airport at Luton to pick up a sample. So it was quite chaotic. And sometimes the work would start early enough so that you could finish by like six, seven and head home. And other times the samples were arriving like four o'clock. So you knew that that was going to be a really late night. Um, you could be here till like 11, 12. Um, it wasn't unusual that um, we either we're here till that late or we were at home and we were working till like well past midnight um i i remember going home sometimes when um they had the claps and i i kind of felt judged because i would be the only car on the road and there were people hitting their pans and clapping for the nhs and they were probably thinking and this one just gets in their car and just drives to places and <clears throat> I was like if only you knew I'm so <laughs> tired from work um yeah so I, I it, it was it was chaotic mm. at work and was there anything you you could do or that you managed to make time to do to support your your well-being I think I had my partner was a real um, source of support for me um we had formed a bubble so that was really good um it was difficult as well because most times you try to have a separation between work and home, but with work moving home, there was no separation anymore. Um, I, I, I remember taking lots of walks. Mm. Um, I used to do lots of walks when I could. Um, what else did I, I took two, I tried painting. I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> um, but we, I felt like we didn't have enough time yeah, to yeah. consider other things. Mm, mm. It was there was just always something else, mm. and 
we needed to move really fast. It's almost like you needed to churn out the data in real time and with the eyes of the world watching. So you needed to make sure that there was no mistakes. And it was just hard. Mm. We never really switched off. And did that outweigh the sense of achievement or the sense of the sense that you were doing something important in terms of giving you a, a um, you know, supporting yeah. your well-being? I don't think so. You don't think you did, yeah. I don't think so because I was, I was exhausted, mm. but I was happy. Oh, you were happy. Yes, I was. So. I was. I was happy. So I, was, I loved it. I love. Yeah. Yes. I. It was. It was manic, but it was. This sort of, let's do it, let's do it. And then I had a lot of, um, I had a lot of responsibility during COVID as well. So while it was scary, um, I knew that I needed it. I, I needed that, that's uh, that being thrown in that situation to mm. develop. Um, so that really brought out skills that I needed for the next step of my career, leadership skills, you know, um, deciding what's perfect and what's good, when to draw the line, you know, between perfection and good, um, um, learning how to triage things and it just, yeah, I, I think I, I was really, I was really happy. It didn't outweigh it at all. Mm. I enjoyed it and um, I, I would always tell my partner that, oh, you know, walking on the front lines, and he's like, "Oh, you sound, you make it sound like you went to war." Or something. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was like that. Yeah, exactly. And I actually, like that. I've, I've heard one person I interviewed said that when monkeypox first mm. arose, and then from just a moment, it was yeah. only a few days. I think yeah. there was a fear that it yeah. might become very big. He said the people in his group really were showing signs of PTSD. Yeah, that they thought, "Oh no." Not again. again. Not again. Yeah. 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 I, I think a lot of us were burnt out in the end, but we didn't realise because we're thriving on adrenaline, I yes, think. Yes. Um, and we just didn't realise. You know, when you're writing publications or you're writing papers for really high publications, in fact, you're writing a paper at all that goes out, it's your name out there. Mm. You don't want to have to, oh, I made a huge mistake and I have to redact it. It's... it's Within, you had to be so focused mm. in what you're doing so that... And you're the first name on some. Some of those papers that have author lists half a page long, yes. yours is the first yeah. name. That's how I found you. Really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it, it was so, pressure. Yeah. It was a whole lot of pressure because you're making sure... Yes. Yeah, 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 you're like, my name is on this. It needs to be done well. I need to be able to defend it years from now and say, you know, things change, you know, certain things will change. And this is where I would always say that science cannot be, you can't be dogmatic about it. You need to be able to change your stance with changing evidence. But you need to be able to say, with the information we had then, with what we had, with the materials, with the reagents, with everything we did, we took the right decision, we made the right decision, and that's what's in this paper. And, you know, you just want to be able to sleep at night. Mm, mm. And it was that pressure, yeah. Mm, mm. But um, I enjoyed every minute of it. I did. <laughs> so, final question. Has the, I mean, you've probably partially answered this, but has the experience of working through the, the pandemic changed your attitude or your approach to your work? Um, in a way, yes. Um, 
what it's showed me is, um, as a scientist, so I've always been quite engaged with the, with the public um, about my work. Um, like I said, to the annoyance of my friends. But I think what I realised was that we don't talk enough about the things we do in the lab. Um, we, we as scientists, we're not the best with social skills, but, <laughs> but we, we, we tend to just close ourselves in and then keep doing our work. And we don't, sometimes we don't think about the translational um, side of it, but other times we don't think about letting the world know. We publish it in this very, very scientific papers that only another scientist would read. Um, so for me, it's meant that I am always open to opportunities to engage with the public now, because I think the public needs to know. If they knew that the vaccine did not just spring up after a few months, you know, it was years and years of research that went into it. Maybe we would have had less stick. Maybe we would have had less vaccine hesitant people. Um, if they knew that we acknowledged and we empathized with some of the we, some of their feelings, you know, some of the mistakes that science had made in the past with certain communities that were vaccine hesitant. Um, if they knew that, okay, we understand where you're coming from, but look, we're honestly, you know, it's it's not we're not we're not we're not playing a game here. We're we're really trying to help. That could have we had to do a lot of emergency public health uh, public engagement, but I think we need to build that into our work and that's what I try to do now. Mm -hmm. I try to talk to people about what's going on in science. Um, recently, um, what I'm trying to do is set up a podcast where um, I take on different papers that have been published and then just break it down for the layperson and get my partner, um, well, well, it might be a podcast, it might be a vlog, I'm not sure yet, but get my partner, who is a software developer, to ask me questions about the paper. And then if I can't explain it well enough for him to understand, then I assume I haven't explained it well enough for a layperson to understand. So that's, that's what I want to do. Mm -hmm. I want the public to know how science is moving. It shouldn't, science shouldn't be closed anymore. And I think if we can bring the public in more, we can have a lot more collaboration and a lot more advancement with what we're doing, you know, because, yeah, they, they can be messengers for us. They can, you know, we could have had people who would have said, no, nah, I know about this work, you know, they've been working on these mRNA vaccines for years. Um, um, part of the one, one interesting point that someone made um, during COVID was, oh, if making a vaccine was so easy, why don't we have a vaccine for HIV and why don't we have a vaccine for cancer? And those are two things that I was involved in. And I was like, that is such a simple answer. If the public doesn't know that, then we failed in engaging with the public, you know. With HIV, it's just a really difficult virus to make a, a a vaccine for and all the traditional methods have failed. In fact, <laughs> the mRNA vaccine was to be trialed in HIV before it was very quickly pushed to COVID. So a lot of what we know for COVID and a lot of other infectious diseases came from the work we've done with HIV and that's why we could 
really ramp it up so quickly. And then with cancers, there isn't just one. You know, we have a vaccine for HPV, but we can't get a vaccine for any of the others because it's so diverse. So if simple things like that, the public are not aware. And why, why should they know if we haven't mm -hmm. told them? Mm -hmm. You know, so for me, that's, that was the biggest change that I got out of COVID. I need to engage more with the public. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you'd be very good at it, all the evidence <laughs> of this conversation. I think it's, I just talk too much, that's the problem. <laughs> That's what I want. <laughs> okay, thanks very much. You're welcome.